Hello and welcome back to the Young Adults Bible Study Podcast. My name is Lindsay and this week we are going to be going through Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 9. We are going to be looking at questions that Paul has asked and the answers to them. He asked a lot of really good questions that are very thought-provoking, but we also can see that he debunks them as well. There were a lot of people speculating that he was teaching something that he truly wasn't. So without further ado, let's dive in to the book of Romans. Sometimes to learn where you're going, you have to look back at where you've been. So let's take a few seconds and review what we learned in chapter 2. We looked at God's righteous judgment and what that looks like for us. We learned that he judges based off of truth, his truth, and not our truth. We learned that we store up wrath against ourselves and that God is the one that protects us from it, like a dam holding back water. God is this dam holding back all of this wrath. He protects us from the wrath that we are saving up for ourselves in order to allow us to repent. God's judgment is based on what we do, our works, our fruit. We can't be saved by works, but we can be judged by our works. If we do something wrong, even if it's for the right reason, it's still wrong. Lying is lying and cheating is cheating. Imagine renouncing your faith because someone was going to kill you because of it. Your human reasoning may be that you want to live in order to spread the gospel even further. But is it truly right? No, you're, you're still doing something wrong. You're still doing an action that is wrong, even if you yourself has a good reason behind it. Even with the seemingly right motive, something that is wrong is still wrong. God's judgment has no favoritism. He doesn't care if it's the immoral, the moral, the Gentile, the Jew, the person from Canada, or the person from Pakistan. We're all the same in sin. We learn that God's judgment is based off of what we know. For the Jewish people, they had the law given to them from God through Moses. And because of this, they were held to the standards of the law because that's what they decided to follow. Those who don't have the law or don't follow the law, this is their conscience. Their conscience is their standard. We cannot even live up to this standard. We have all gone against our own judgment and we can't live up to even our own standard of right is. We learn that God's judgment is based on the secrets of our heart. He knows what we do in secret. He knows where our hearts are at. He knows who we are on the inside, not just what we look like on the outside. And finally, last week, well, a couple weeks ago, I guess now, we learned that God's judgment is based on reality, not what we consider to be real or right, but what is true reality. Just because something looks good doesn't mean it is. Remember the cans analogy that we talked about from David Guzik? The label on the outside needs to match what's on the inside, or else we'll have an entire mess. Paul took away all of our human excuses of why some believe they are not sinners. We cannot say there is no God because God made himself clear to all to see. We cannot say, 
I follow my conscience because they are held to what they know. We cannot claim other people are worse than us because if that's true, we are still all sinners and we still all go against our standard of truth. So what about the excuse, well, I go to church or I'm a religious person? Paul poked holes in that too. We are all sinners and chapter 2 confirms that for us by teaching us what God's judgment truly is and who it's meant for. It is meant for anyone who does not receive his wonderful gift of salvation. If you guys have any questions at all about Romans chapter 2, I really do urge you to send an email to youngadultsbiblestudy.pc at gmail.com and just send me your questions because I really do love answering those questions for you guys. And if something isn't clear, I would love to be able to clear that up for you. Or if I don't know the answer, I would love to do some research and help you find the answer. I truly do love doing research sometimes. It might be a nerdy thing to do, but that's okay. Um, But without further ado, let's move on to Romans chapter 3. So last week I posted an interview with me and my sister Randy, at part one at least, but the week before that we talked about circumcision and other ceremonies and traditions such as baptism. Paul pointed out that if what's on the inside doesn't match what's on the outside, then the ceremony or tradition doesn't really matter. It doesn't have any purpose. If the Jewish person who is circumcised does not follow the law, then they are just as good as someone who is uncircumcised. There is no point in their circumcision if they don't follow what they say that they follow. So Paul asks a very good question in verse 1 of chapter 3. He asks, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? I think this is a really good question because we just talked about there is no point of circumcision if you're not following the law and a lot of them didn't follow the law so is there even a point? Paul just finished talking about how being circumcised will not save you so it seems almost though it is absolutely pointless to be circumcised. But then Paul answers his own question and he says much in every way. First of all the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God And that's found in Romans chapter 3, verse 2. Paul is now going on to say that there's a lot of advantage starting out with the very word of God given to the Jewish people. Being a Jew and being circumcised may not save you, as we discussed in Romans chapter 2, but it is an advantage to knowing God. There is a huge advantage to these people because they had a foundation to build off of. I think you can relate this in a lot of ways to growing up in a Christian household. Simply growing up in a Christian household doesn't save you, and it doesn't automatically make you a Christian, but it does give you some advantages over other people who haven't grown up in a Christian household because you have a firm foundation of knowing who God is in a knowledgeable way, not maybe in a heart way, but in a head way. You you can understand who God is. Um, But then you also have the word of God and you also have people who are comfortable with talking about God around you. You have a Christian bubble already, whereas those who didn't grow up in a Christian home don't have that. And they usually have to force their way into those bubbles or into those groups, which I'm not saying is a good thing because we should just be welcoming. But as we know, Christians aren't perfect and that doesn't always happen. 
But this is what Paul is talking about with the Jewish people, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So they have an advantage because they have God's words already. So even though Paul said that there are many advantages, having the word of God is the only advantage that he actually gives us in this specific text. Of course, if you look into it a little bit more, you can definitely find other things like they were entrusted with God's laws and you can read that in Exodus and Deuteronomy or Jesus was a Jew and came through their line of people and you can read that in Isaiah or Matthew. Um, The people had covenants made with God that you can find in Genesis and Exodus and Paul also expands on these reasons uh, in Romans chapter 9 and we will get to that in a few episodes. By a few, I mean quite a few, but that's okay. The Jewish people took the fact that they were entrusted with God's word very seriously. Anytime the scrolls would be copied, they didn't just copy them. Like, they didn't, like, you know how we type and sometimes we don't even have to look at the keyboard and we just give her, we just kind of copy what we have in front of us? Or, like, when we copy something off of the board in high school, you look at the sentence and then you write the sentence down. They didn't even do that. They didn't even go word by word. They actually copied the scrolls letter by letter. And as they were copying down these letters, they would have somebody review it and check each and every letter. And if there was a mistake, they wouldn't just strike it out. Like, they, you know how if you make a mistake, you can use whiteout or you use a pen and you just kind of scribble it out? They didn't do it. They didn't even attempt to fix it. They ripped up the entire scroll and they started over. So if you were on the very last letter of the scroll and you messed up that one letter, they would rip it up and you would have to start all over again. They took having the very words of God very, very seriously. Jewish people are the very reason we have the word as perfect as we have it today. God's words were sacred to them. They were entrusted with this great responsibility and they did what they were supposed to do. They followed through. But remember, just having the word of God and being entrusted with it doesn't save you. So it comes back to the fact that yes, It very much is an advantage for them, but it still doesn't save them. But that doesn't just go for them, and we have to remember that. It's also for us. Just having God's word and reading your Bible doesn't save you. And just going to church doesn't save you. Having Christian friends doesn't save you. Going to a young adult's Bible study doesn't save you. Praying to God doesn't necessarily save you, unless, of course, you're You're asking God to come into your heart and you have faith and it's not just praying because you were taught to pray, but growing up in that Christian home doesn't save you. So after Paul asks and answers this question, he has another question. He asks, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And we see that in Romans chapter three, verse three. So let's open this up a little bit by asking, If humans are unfaithful, does that make God unfaithful? In all of history, people have chosen to reject God. People have chosen to throw him away and do their own selfish thing. And we can see this 
all over the Old Testament. We can see the Israelites going against God almost every step of the way of their journey. If you turn to Psalm 106, you can see a giant list of all of the things that they did that went against God. Just to read off a few, they gave no thought to God's miracles. They rebelled by the Red Sea. They gave into their cravings in the wilderness and put God to the test. They grew envious of Moses and Aaron. They exchanged God for the image of a bull. They didn't believe in God's promises. They grumbled in their tents. They did wicked deeds. They didn't destroy the people when God commanded them to. They worshipped idols. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to false gods. They prostituted themselves. All of these things seem like a really big act of rebellion. And some of them seem pretty, pretty bad. They worshipped idols. But they didn't just worship them. They also sacrificed their sons and daughters to these false gods. That sounds pretty bad. Or prostituting themselves. That also sounds really bad. But just because the people were unfaithful, does that mean that God was? No, it does not. So all of those things that we just read that were a rebellion against God, we found in Psalm 106. So let's read the second part of Psalm 106 in verses 44 to 48. It says, Yet he who took note of their distress when he heard their cry, for their sake he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love he relented. He caused all who held them captive to show them mercy. Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise to be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all of the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. They rejected God over and over again, but God had mercy on them. Since God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, Paul's question, what if some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness, was answered by, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. When we read the words, let God be true and every man a liar, it is very easy to skip over this, thinking that we already kind of understand what this means. But I think it's a lot deeper than humans are imperfect and God is perfect. It's much more than that. It means that if every single human on planet Earth said one thing, but God said another, God would be the one who's right. There's a phrase that we hear quite often, and it is, God failed me. But when you look at when we hear that phrase, God failed me, we usually hear them in times of despair, when people are going through something that is really, really hard. Maybe they just lost a family member and they're grieving. Maybe they lost their house to a fire. Um, Maybe they're at war. Maybe they're just in a really tough financial spot. But whatever the case, when people think that God had failed them, it is in these really awful situations. But God does not fail us. It is usually us who decides to take the path that is not glorifying to God. When we are in a place of saying, God did not hold up his promises to me, 
It's usually because we are the ones that walked away from him and his perfect will. Please do not get me wrong, though. Like, I'm not saying that if you walk away from God, all of these bad things are going to happen. I mean, obviously, in a lot of cases, that is true. But look at Job. He was a very righteous man, and he had a lot of things taken away from him. He had his family die. He had all of his crops fail. He had all of his animals gone. Um, he had sores all of his bo- all over his body. His wife told him to curse God and die. Like, Job was in a really tough position, and it wasn't because he walked away from God. So, we have to remember that that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. But I am saying that people that are in those situations, a lot of times they do curse God and they are like, God, why did you fail me? But God did not fail you and has not failed you and will not fail you because let God be true and every human a liar. Those thoughts of God failing me, God failing you, those are lies from the enemy because God will never fail us. God will never give us a promise and then go back on his promise. You are special to God and I don't know who's on the other side of this, but if you are in a tough situation right now, just know that God will not fail you. God has not failed you and God will not fail you. There is this one family that I know that has had a lot of trauma in their family. Um, Their mother passed away quite a few years ago, leaving the dad to raise the family all on his own. Um, It was quite a big family too. There was quite a few kids and their one son, one of my first youth actually, thought that God had failed him. He was mad at God and ran away from him rather than towards him. But as a teenage boy, when your mother passes away, there is a lot of trauma there and you do look at God as though God had failed him. His mother was a very devout Christian and um, he just remembers his mother being so in tune with God and praying and reading her Bible and when she died, he took it out on God and thought that God had failed him. One day, this youth got into a car accident that should have killed him. The doctors thought that he wouldn't, he wouldn't survive. And if he did, um, they thought that he would have severe mental delays and that um, he wouldn't have had a very good life and that he would have had to been kept alive by machines if he did survive. But thanks to God and God alone, he had a quick recovery that left him almost as good as he was before the accident. Um, He did have a couple things that were frustrating and things that weren't perfect. Um, He had a stint in his heart and it was there to keep the valve open so then that his heart could pump as normal. He was able to walk and talk and drive and be a normal teenager again. He realized that God had a bigger plan for him. He realized that he was just mad at God and has been mad at God for so many years. And he started reading his Bible and attending church regularly. And um, he really started to put his trust into God and learn that there truly is a bigger purpose and that 
God didn't fail him. About six months after his accident, this young gentleman went out for a run and collapsed. He had a blood clot in his stint, and only a few days later, he died. God held back judgment and gave him mercy in order for him to realize that God did not fail him. God gave him six more months to live to show this young man his love and kindness and truth. Now, his sisters are dealing with the thought that God had failed them. But because they also saw God's mercy in giving him more months to come back to him, they also see that God has goodness and that God is good. God did not fail this family. Although it may seem like God did in the midst of their sorrow, God actually loved this family and brought them closer to him through all of this trauma. So what are you dealing with right now that feels like God has failed you? What are you dealing with in your life that feels like, God, why are you doing this to me? God, why won't you let me continue on? God, why did you take this out of my life? Or why did you put this into my life? Do you have a story of realizing that God didn't fail you? I would love to hear that story if you have one. And Again, you can just email that to me if you would like to. You don't have to, and if you want it on the podcast, I would love that. And maybe I'll even set up an interview with you. Who knows? But I love hearing God's testimony in people's lives because it's so incredibly encouraging, not only to me, but also for everyone who hears it because it truly does show who God is and how good he is because although this family had a lot of crappy things happen to them for lack of a better word they they had a lot of death in their family but god god proved himself in those times and god brought them back because of this god worked in their lives through the sorrow so remember romans chapter 3 verse 4 Let God be true, and every human a liar. Paul then goes on to quote David when David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba. David says, So that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And you can find that quote in Psalm 54.4. David is crying out to God, declaring that God is righteous in his judgment. So when Paul uses David, a man after God's own heart, a king, prince over everyone in Israel, as an example of going against God, he also points out that David saw God's judgment as righteous and true. David knew he was wrong and God was right. David could have easily thought that God was a liar and didn't protect him. But the truth is, David was the one that did something displeasing to God. If you don't know the story of David and Bathsheba, I do highly urge you to go read it and um, understand it for yourself. But basically, just for the sake of this podcast, I'll give you some Cole's notes. David played hooky from war and was up in his room and he looked out the window and he saw a beautiful woman who was bathing. 
and he decided to get some information on her, as he would. Um, they told him that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So what does he do? He decides that uh, they should go get her, and he slept with her. She ended up pregnant, so David panicked and got Uriah to come home from the war in order to sleep with his wife, so he would think that it was his, but Uriah was a man of great respect, and he wouldn't go to the comforts of his home when his men were fighting in battle, so he slept at the gates of the palace. Um, David then got him drunk, hoping that he would go home to sleep with his wife, but he still didn't. So David decided to write a letter to give to the guy in charge of the war, and uh, he sent it with Uriah to deliver it to him. The, the letter basically said to put Uriah out on the front lines and leave him all alone in order to have him killed. So David literally made Uriah deliver his own death sentence. Um, yeah. After his wife mourned the death of her husband, David married her. But all of this was displeasing to the Lord. And you can find this story in 2 Samuel 11 if you want to read the full version. But yeah, that's David. And David was crying out to the Lord saying that God is right and that God shall prevail when he judges. Which quite honestly, is is pretty amazing. So after Paul brings David into this, he hits us with a compelling human argument saying, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteous more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And then Paul says that I am using a human argument just to clarify that he's not actually using this argument, but he's just asking the question using a human argument, and we can find that in Romans 3, 5. If we want to reword this to make it make a little bit more sense, we could say, if my unrighteousness will show God's righteousness, how can God judge me? My sin ultimately serves to bring him more glory, and that is a good thing. We might not make an argument just like this, but I think sometimes we do excuse our sin by saying, well, God will use evil for his good. So even that is good in a roundabout way, right? Well, let's look at Judas. He could have said, look, Lord, I know that I betrayed Jesus, but um, you used it for good. Actually, if I didn't do it, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. What I did fulfilled the scriptures. How can you judge me at all? The answer to Judas might have gone something like this. Yes, God used your wickedness, but it is still your wickedness. There was no good or pure motive in your heart at all. It's no credit to you that God brought good out of your evil. You still stand guilty before God. Or let's bring this home a little bit more. People who give false testimonies to bring people to Jesus. I'm sure there are some pastors or great speakers out there that share these miraculous testimonies that just aren't true. People hear these and they are so moved that they become saved and start following the Lord. I mean, that person may have lied, but 
They still came to Christ, so he shouldn't be judged for that, right? Paul again answers this in the next verse, saying, Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? And we see that in Romans 3.6. As we learned in chapter 2, a sin is still a sin, even if it were done for a good motive. The only way God can be a just God is if he brings justice, which comes in the form of judgment. All over scripture, it talks of the day of judgment. It is known to those hearing this letter and reading this letter that there would be a day where people all over were judged. If we could excuse away every single sin with, well, God used it for his good, then who would God be judging on this day? No one would be judged. But as we know, that's not how that will work. So then Paul rephrases the question asking, Someone might argue, If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, Let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Romans 3, 7-8 If you take this question that some asked far enough, you could actually end up saying, Let's sin as much as we can so that God can be glorified even more. Paul, of course, wasn't teaching this to the people, but he was accused of teaching this to people. They took his teaching and twisted his words. Some thought and think, because some people still think it, that they don't have to worry about sin because it's God's job to forgive. Because God is so loving that he won't judge us. Because sin teaches us valuable lessons. Or because we need to stay in touch with the culture around us. But as we have been looking at this book of Romans, we see that Paul speaks strongly against sin. You can spin it any way that you want, but either way, there will be judgment, there will be a judgment day, and sin is sin, and you cannot just live with it. We shouldn't just be accepting it and allowing it in our lives and allowing it to take over our lives. We so often take grace for granted. We don't see judgment, so we see no need to change. We look at sin like it's a small problem and that it's just kind of annoying rather than something that destroys us and will bring judgment on us. God cannot overlook sin. Sinners, no matter how many excuses are made, must answer to God for their sin. We cannot just excuse our sin away because God's judgment is righteous. God is patient, which is why we are not judged right now. People sometimes have in their minds, God has special favor on us because look what we're doing for him. The Gentiles could have easily turned around and said, we're the ones spreading the word of Christ now, so we must be better than the Jews. We don't do those things that the Jews do, so God must look on us with favor. Paul combats this immediately, saying, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. And that's in Romans 3.9. As we have been saying for the last few weeks, 
everyone is the same under sin. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be a pagan, a moralist, or a Jew, and we are all sinners. Let us take a closer look at the phrase, under the power of sin, that we read in Romans 3.9. First of all, what does it mean to be under the power of something? Not under the fluence, but under the power. It means that there is something more powerful that you are under. We can be under the power of our parents, or of our government, of a king or a queen. If you are under power of one of these things, there are usually a set of rules that you must follow while under these people's rule. So if you are under the power of sin, it has rule over you. It is the thing that you obey and follow. We have all been under the power of sin, and some still are. Paul brings us even further then by saying, as it is written, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And that's in Romans 3, 10 to 11. This at first sounds heretical. It Doesn't it? I, I definitely think that this sounds heretical because no one seeks God. But, but what about me? Um, I'm doing this podcast and I'm researching all the time like I'm seeking God. Or to you guys, like I'm listening to this podcast like I'm seeking God. I'm seeking to like grow in my faith and uh, I'm, I'm seeking him. I want to learn more. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I pray to God. So why on earth does Paul say that no one seeks God? But there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. When God finds none righteous, it is because there are none. It isn't as if there were some and God couldn't see them. There has never been a truly righteous man apart from Jesus Christ. Even Adam wasn't righteous. He was innocent at first, not knowing good and evil, but he wasn't truly righteous. There is no one who seeks God. We think that people on their own seek God. Look at all of those people who meditate and burn incense and use crystals and tarot cards and go to mediums. People have always done this since the beginning of time. We even use the phrase, they're just trying to understand the world and find out who God really is. But this isn't the case. Man cannot just stumble and find God. He cannot just trip on a branch and, oh, well, there's God. Well, that was easy. That's not how that happens. And that's not what people are trying to do. People try to find something that will give them peace of mind away from God. They're trying to find something that takes their sorrows and frustration and pain away. They aren't trying to find God. They are trying to find something that aligns with who they want to be. They don't want to admit that they are sinful. They don't want to admit that they are wrong sometimes. They want to be a god in their own eyes. They don't want a hell to exist because if a hell existed, that means that they actually have to watch what they're doing. They actually have to understand that there's a consequence to what they do. There was one girl that I had as a roommate about three or so years ago, and she was always interested in Christianity, but she never truly followed it, like, before I met her. 
um, she went to church with her grandparents every once in a while, and she had a Bible that she, she had, but I don't know if she ever read it, um, but after moving in with me, she started going to church, and she started to read her Bible, and she started to pray, and you could see that she was learning, and that there was a genuine joy in her. It was very different, because she moved in with me having a lot of mental health issues, like, a lot of mental health issues, and things started slowly fading away. Like, she, she, her depression was less and less and less, and her craziness was less and less and less. Her, her lies were less and less and less, and we were only roommates for a few months, and it was some of the most trying times of my life, but we always joked that I helped her get back on the horse and she helped me get off my high horse. Um, she recently moved close to where I live now and I invited her to the young adults group that I host here in town. And at first she said that she wanted to come. Um, we arranged that she would come for a ride, that I would pick her up for a ride and take her there and then drop her back up at home. Um, but then COVID hit and, um, well, we didn't have young adults for a little while, but we recently started having it again, and I reached out to her and said, hey, if you still need that ride, we're doing young adults on Thursday at seven, um, would you still like to come? And I was very sad at her response when she told me that she had renounced her faith to go a more spiritual route. Um, she said that crystals and tarot cards and spell casting and self-reflection were all part of her journey. I wished her well and told her that I would continue to be praying for her and that if she ever wanted to come, I would pick her up. Um, but my heart broke inside. But this is exactly what it means by no one seeks God. She was looking for something all on her own. She wanted something to help her and to give her peace of mind. And when Christianity didn't give her that or, um, even if it did for a while, but if she stopped feeling that with Christianity, she moved on to the next thing. As soon as things started getting hard, she she was seeking for more. But even as Christians, we sometimes have such empty forms of worship. People raise their hands during worship because other people are doing it or um, because they think that it'll allow them to feel God more. People pray in such a way that um, there's no faith behind it, but they want everything given to them or they want their lives fixed. We go to God like he's Santa Claus, like, do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, and this is what I want, and can you give me this as well? And people get baptized because other people do. If their friend is getting baptized that Sunday, they're like, oh yeah, um, I'll get baptized too. But they don't actually understand the meaning behind it or they don't understand why they're getting baptized. And sometimes people even do it without actually making that commitment in their life. They just want that title. Um, people give to the church because they feel like that's what they have to do. People give to the needy because it makes them feel like they are doing something worthwhile. Um, there are so many things that people do that I do that are empty forms of trying to find God. We need to remember to position ourselves in that spirit of worship because it's not simply about doing the things. It's it's about the heart when we come to God. It's not just a, I want this, I want this, or it's not a, hey God, I need peace right now. I mean, 
Of course, we should go to God with our needs and our wants and our frustrations, but we also need to give thanksgiving and we also need to come with just a spirit of worship in general, like just praising God for who he is and what he has done. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, sometimes you have to know where you've been in order to know where you're going. And that's where testimonies are so cool because you can look back and see how God has worked through your life and then you can praise him and give worship to him for those things. And sometimes it helps lead you to where you are going. And I just think that is so incredibly cool. God is amazing and I am so thankful to have him in my life. Um, that is where we are going to leave off for this week because we are starting to run a little long. Um, apparently I like hearing the sound of my own voice. Uh, just kidding. Um, if you guys want to email me, you can do so at youngadultsbiblestudy.pc at gmail.com. I would love to hear anything from where you live and where you're listening from to, um, a testimony that you have or a question that you have. Um, we also have a subreddit called Young Adults Bible Study on Reddit. If you have any prayer requests or anything that you'd like me to hold up in prayer this week, I would definitely love to hear about that as well. Um, I thank you guys so much for listening and for those people that are consistent. We have 250 listeners, which is absolutely insane. It's it's so cool. Every time I open the app that tells me how many people, it always goes up by like between 3 and 15, which is amazing. It's just such a blessing to know that God is using this podcast, especially since I was originally using it for just my young adults Bible study here in Regina, but it has gone all over the world. It is super cool. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and we will continue back in Romans three next week. Bye for now.